I'd like for you to turn to the 39th chapter of the book of Genesis. I want to begin a series today concerning how our faith impacts certain um, aspects of our culture. And I want to get, this is the most sensitive one, so I want to get it off first, get it over with. And uh, I don't want you to turn me off. If I have the courage to talk about this sensitive subject, I challenge you to have the courage to listen. The 39th chapter of Genesis. Now, Joseph had, taken down, had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, brought him from the, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. He was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord had caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house and all that he owned he put in his charge. And it came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in farm and appearance. And it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and she said, lie with me. But he refused, said to his master's wife, behold with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in his house and he's put me, put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? And it came about as she spoke to Joseph day after day that he did not listen to her, to lie beside her or be with her. Now it happened one day when he went out of the house to do his work and none of the men of the household were there inside. She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to her, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I screamed. And it came about when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, that he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words, The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into in me, make sport of me. It happened as I raised my voice and screamed that he left his garment beside me and fled outside. C.S. Lewis has spun an incredible tale in his book, The Great Divorce in which he pictures a little red lizard sitting on the shoulder of a, of a creature he calls the ghost. 
And the lizard swishes its tail and whispers in the ear of the creature. And the creature urges the beast to be silent, but he will not be silent. All of a sudden there appears a bright and shining object. And the bright and shining object offers to rid the ghost of this creature on his shoulders. But the ghost refuses knowing that to rid him of this baggage would mean that the ghost, that the beast, the lizard, would have to be put to death. And so a series of rationale begins. Why don't we, the ghost says, why don't we just see if we can tame him, domesticize him, or suppress him, or put him to sleep, or gradually be rid of him. But the shining object says, no, that the gradual approach is useless. It's all or nothing. And so finally, the ghost gives permission to the shining object, and he reaches up and wrenches the lizard from his shoulders, and when he hurls it to the floor, he breaks its back and it dies. Incredibly, at that instant, the ghost becomes a perfect man, and the lizard is transformed into a silver and gold stallion, and the man leaps astride the stallion and rides off into the morning with the stallion as one. And C.S. Lewis concludes this marvelous tale with these words. A lizard is nothing compared to a stallion. Lust is just a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing compared to that richness and energy of desire that arises when lust has been put to death. End of quote. Unfortunately, we live in a world that is reluctant to rid itself of the red lizard of lust. A few months ago, the National Bureau of Health Statistics gave some startling information that young people are more sexually active at a younger age than any generation before them. One-fourth of all girls are sexually active at the age of 15, and that number increases to 81% by the age of 19. And three-fourths of all the boys are sexually active at the age of 17. And that number increases to 88% at the age of 19. The consequences? These are the consequences. 1,500,000 abortions performed in this country last year. 38 different sexually transmitted diseases at epidemic proportions and three million adolescents contract these sexually transmitted diseases every year. And as startling as these facts are, they are overshadowed by this enormous problem of the AIDS epidemic, which has been called the most dreadful epidemic of our time and the most fearful killer, so that by the year 2000 it is projected that it will be the number one cause of death in this world. Now in light of these alarming facts, 
the experts are talking about new ways to deal with the problem. But yet these new ways, quote, end quote, are really, have been around, been with us a, a, a long time. They're not new ways, really. They are abstinence, monogamy, and responsibility. I want to talk this morning about this issue, about this red lizard that sits on the shoulders. And I want to talk in general terms. And then I want to conclude, if time allows, with narrow it down in, into a topic, into a, 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 a definition which might be how to have, how to uh, have a, a, a marriage that is successful and pure and right. Some general statements. Sexual temptation has been with us all the time and will always be with us. In Homer's epic poem, The Odyssey, these sirens, he calls them, are these mythological creatures, half bird and half woman. And they live on this island that is surrounded by submerged and jagged rocks. And when the sailors come sailing by, they sing their beautiful and seductive songs, leading the sailors to their death. And Odysseus, when he had his ship go by, he had his men, he commanded his men to stuff their ears with wax. And he had himself lashed to the mast of the ship, lest he change his orders. Now it is true that the song of the siren can be overcome, but the songs never are completely silent. And so Potiphar's wife sang one every day in her house. And the lyrics were the same, they were always the same, lie with me, lie with me. And we hear that refrain in the streets and in the schools and in the, and in the workplace and in the home. They never are completely silent. Now Joseph became, came to Egypt at a critical time in his life. He had to make the transition from being the favorite son of a wealthy Israeli to the favorite slave of a powerful Egyptian. And he was far away from home without the counsel of his father. And his father thought, actually, that he was dead. But he seemed to make the transition in, in a marvelous way because he became Potiphar's right-hand man. And he was placed in authority over everything that Potiphar owned, over his personal and professional affairs. And he lived in that culture, had to make the transition, learning a new language and a new lifestyle and a new, uh, and a new language. And he became successful. The Bible says that God's hand was on him and he became very successful. Unfortunately, the world measures success, the success of a person, by the status and position of that person. But true success comes True success is enjoyed only by being and doing the will of God. And Joseph learned an axiom in all of this, and the axiom is this, that the person who is most blessed by God is oftentimes the target of Satan, the adversary's most serious assault. 
And one of his ploys has always been sexual temptation. The moral climate of Pharaoh's Egypt became the setting of his temptation. Art and literature were excessively permissive and illicit. And archaeologists by their digs have suggested that the immorality of Pharaoh's Egypt was more pervasive than our own culture. And he was far away from home and he was young, probably about 20 or 21 years of age. And obviously there were times of loneliness and homesickness. And he was handsome. The Bible says he was good-looking in form and appearance. And what we have is the making of a moral disaster, the setting for a moral disaster. And yet, the record indicates that nothing implicit, nothing illicit was ever done. That leads me to point number two. Temptation can be overcome. Temptation can be overcome. Now I need to say something I believe that relates to all of us, but perhaps to um, maybe to young people more than us who are older. Temptation of any kind can be overcome. Now when you look at this text with a closer look, you'll find that there are at least three reasons why Joseph chose purity rather than promiscuity in light of these conflicting circumstances in which he found himself. Three reasons he remained pure. Number one is because he knew somebody trusted him. Trust. Potiphar trusted him. And he put him in charge of everything except what he was to eat. His trust was total. A number of years ago, Arthur Miller came out with an award-winning play, Death of a Salesman. Many of you have read that. The main character of that play was Willie Loman. Willie Loman was a loud, broad, um, braggart, loud mouth, brash man. And he had two sons, and they literally worshipped him. They idolized him. And it never occurred to them, perhaps, that these scams his father, their father boasted about, these these tricks he pulled in business, it never occurred to them that, that the reason why he was a failure was because this never works. They, they just assumed that all that his dad bragged about was the way you dealt in, business, in the business world. And they didn't realize that their friends next door who were, who were successful were honest and good. And they didn't realize that their own unpopularity and failure at school was because they emulated their father. Until one day the older son got in trouble at school and he left. And he went to Chicago to find his father and he burst into a hotel room where he knew his father was staying to see his father presenting a pair of nylons to a brazen woman. He was devastated by the violation of his father's trust. And he started a descent downward, a glide path downward that ended in despair and suicide. I would be true for there are those who trust me I would be pure for there are those who care. A young woman got up to give her testimony in her church. She said as a teenager, she was never under curfew. 
Her parents never put her under curfew. They would ask her, what time do you expect to be home tonight? And she would tell them. And I'm not sure that works for every teenager. Don't run out and say, hey, preacher gave us some good ideas. This morning. I'm not sure that works for every teenager. Uh, perhaps if she had been unreasonable, there would have been some more negotiation. But she, they just trusted her, and so she responded to their trust. She so delighted in their trust that it never occurred to her to abuse their confidence in her. In fact, she would come home earlier than they would have required her if they'd have been doing it. She would have never, she never thought about violating their confidence. And Joseph says, this is something I could never do. This man trusts me and I will never entertain the idea of violating that trust. Second, he recognized that Potiphar, Mrs. Potiphar, was off limits to him. Now I want you to see something interesting. The interesting thing here is, is that the very thing that Joseph used against this opportunity, Eve used as an excuse for it. While what was off limits was attractive to, to Eve, was repulsive to Joseph. Now you watch a child and you tell that child that this is denied, this is off limits. And like magic, the thing that is denied becomes the most attractive thing in his world because it is a part of childishness, ingratitude and selfishness to want that which is forbidden. So Joseph learned early in life that no meant no, and he never ever sat around wishing for that which was off limits. Third, he knew that to have an affair with Mrs. Potiphar was a sin against a holy God. Call it what you want. Call sin whatever you want. Call Menninger has a book entitled Whatever Became a Sin. He talks about how we've rationalized it away with our names for it. The fact is, it remains the same, a sin against a holy God. 400 years before God wrote into tablets of stone with his finger, thou shalt not commit adultery. Joseph didn't because he knew that it was a sin against the standard of a holy God and there is no place to hide from him. One pastor tells about a young man coming into his office to say that he'd gone off to college and he'd, he was pure and his friends began to make fun of him like college students might do. High school students began to mock him and what's wrong with you, you know, that kind of stuff. And so he found an occasion, an opportunity, a girl that was willing went to a hotel, cheap hotel. He came into the pastor's office and he said, I can't find God anymore. He said, I lost God. He, he told him what had happened. He said, I lost God there one day. I can't pray. I can't be happy. I can find no joy. I've lost God. And the pastor turned to the 139th Psalm and handed it to him and said, read this aloud. Whither shall I flee from thy presence? 
If I make my bed in Sheol, thou art there. If I ascend into heaven, thou art there. If I take the wings of a dove and fly into the wings of a morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, behold, thou art there, and thy hand surrounds me both before and after. I can't even think of a thought without you having thought of it first. And he took back the Bible and said to the young man, the problem is not that you can't find God. The problem is you can't get away from him. Now I want to move, if I can, quickly to some what I believe are some things that will help us to have um, an affair-free relationship. In Peterson's book, The Myth of the Greener Grass, he says, There indeed might be a point of no return in temptation, but there are a lot of things we can do before we ever get to that point. That's what I want to talk about. Number one, do not allow yourself to be in compromising situations. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Give careful attention to the friends you have. Make sure that they are Christians. Now, I know there's a lot of debate about whether I should uh, date you know, an unbeliever. Be very careful about friends. And married couples, be very careful about friends. Don't fall into the trap of friendships. Make sure that those intimate friends you have are Christians with a growing, deepening relationship with God. And be careful of what happens at the workplace. I read recently of a group of 12 ladies that were on break. Ten of those women were uh, uh, married. Two of them were not. And one of the women who was not married asked, about, asked this question, how many of you have been totally faithful in marriage? Only one said positive to the answered positive to that. And as the discussion began to develop, it became obvious that it was that the workplace and in friendships became this place where um, temptation was so powerful and strong. Read Garden MacDonald's book, Re Rebuilding Your Broken World. And this man tells that one day his mother called him. They lived in Denver, Colorado. And she said, we're having to move from Denver because my allergies are so bad. He said, well, I thought that's why people moved to Denver. <laughs> For they got an asthma clinic there, the greatest in the world. And she said, well, my doctor told us that these, this pollution that had been trapped in the valleys had gotten so bad I was going to have to leave Denver for my health. And he said, I thought it strange that this place where people went in pursuit of health, they were now fleeing to preserve their health. Let me say this without fear of contradiction, unequivocally, let me say this. If you're in an environment, young people, adults, an environment that is unhealthy to your relationship with one another and with God, flee it. 
my phone rang, and a lady on the other end of the line said, you don't know me? I don't go to your church. I've just heard about you. I need to talk. I said, well, you need an appointment? We'll just talk on the phone. I, she said, I don't want anyone you to know me. She said, I'm married. I, my husband is somewhat boring. <laughs> and she said, I'm working with a guy that I'm attracted to. And she said, I need some help about what's going to happen here. I, she, I said, well, what's, what, what, you know, what's the deal? She said, well, we're just so close together all the time at work. I said, you want, you, you want your marriage? Yes, yes, sir, I want it more than anything. I said, quit work. Sounds a little harsh. Flee. Number two, define the boundaries of your relationships with others. Paul urged Timothy to treat the younger women as sisters and the older women as mothers. Number three, be your mate's host or hostess. Be your mate's host or hostess. Now I see these question marks on your face. Let me, let me see if I can illustrate it. Part of behaving like a child is, is acting like a guest in his own house. Do you remember how surprised you were when you went away to college or you got your job and you left home? How many things that your parents had done for you that you now are having to do for yourself? I, I went to a meeting last, last week and they, it was honoring dads at Baylor University and this, this girl got up to honor her dad. The sweetest story. And she said, Dad, you know, when I went away to college, a light bulb went out and it stayed out for about a month. <laughs> And he said, all of a sudden it dawned on me, that thing's not going to correct itself. And, it, it, and, said, all, all, and I kind of realized that every time a light bulb went out, you fixed it. And you took care of us. I heard a pastor say one night, his wife said, honey, let's spend the night tonight. Let's, let's spend the weekend in the guest room. And he said, I thought that was pretty weird. And, and, and she said, you know, when we have guests, we don't know if they're comfortable or not. <laughs> we don't know if they have, you know, the right cover and a bed and, a, you know, and towels, enough towels and stuff. He said, let's just stay there and then we'll know how, how it is with them. And he said, you know, a part, you know, a child, a part of being a child is that somebody takes care of you when you have a rela when you have marriage. Let me suggest that you become your mate's host or hostess. A few years ago, a man by the name of Willard Harley, a Massachusetts psychologist, surveyed the basic needs of men and women in marriage and found this. This is amazing. Listen to me. I got time to do it. That the needs of men and women are completely different. According to Dr. Harley's survey, the top five basic needs of the female in marriage are affection, communication, openness slash honesty, financial support, and family contentment. On the other hand, the male's top basic needs are sexual fulfillment, recreational companionship, an attractive wife, domestic support, and admiration. Hey, you're the greatest guy that ever lived. Now, doesn't it seem like that if I give to my mate, to my spouse, what I need, expecting that in return, then I've gotten things all messed up. I miss the mark every time. But if I as a husband 
I'm not going to confess, but I as a husband begin to strive to meet what my partner needs, I'll hit the mark every time. And lest you think that treating a spouse as an honored guest seems offensive, consider what Jesus said about it. This is what he said. Who is the greatest among you? Let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table, or he who serves? In our culture, he says, isn't it the one who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as one who serves. One last thought, please. Remember the promises you made. I believe an affair, whatever that's called, is not so much a sexual sin as it is the breaking of a promise. The biblical concept of covenant involves two distinct parties who bind themselves to each other and in so doing make that bond the most significant thing in their lives. And their lives revolve around that covenant like planets revolving around the sun. A hundred years ago, they brought slaves to America. And they landed, many of them landed in Charleston, South Carolina. They still have the slave market there as a reminder of those terrible days in our history. And there are a lot of stories that swarm around the slave market in Charleston, South Carolina. One of my favorites is the story of a day when a young slave, a group of slaves were being sold. A young man stood tall, strong, confident, almost arrogant, stood there courageously, proud. Somebody said, look at that, look at that slave. What's the difference? And someone gave the answer. In Africa, he was the son of a king, and he hasn't forgotten it. I believe that at the heart of all that we do is the fact that we are sons of the Most High, and we must never forget it. I know that we don't need to live in the past. We are forgiven, and there's reconciliation. And by the mercy of God, there can be the reclaiming of life. That's what I want to encourage today. Reconciliation, coming from the darkness to the light. A reunion time where people come home, back to the God who made them, their king. And I'll close with this. I was I watched as you did the reunion of our troops coming home from Desert Storm. Little kids running across tarmacs and 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 through big old facilities they had erected for these men who came home. Parents, uh, uh, spouses running and embracing. Some of you guys are here, Don and Gib, were there in, in Desert Storm. I watched that and rejoiced with you, tears in our eyes to see it.
My favorite story is of a woman who went rushing out, embraced her husband who had been gone two or three months, and whispered in his ear, I'm in labor. Uh, that'll get your uh, that'll get your attention. What a, what a, what a welcome home. But I tell you, there's nothing like what happens when God's people come back from the desert, from the bondage, from the dungeons and bondages to say, I'm the son of the king, and I haven't forgotten it. And I'm going to stand tall and right and honest and decent and pure. And I'm going to treat those in my world as God wants me to treat them. Now, I know the danger of a sermon like this is that when the invitation is given, somebody says, man, I wouldn't dare go down there, man. I, I, they'd think I did something terrible. <laughs> I wouldn't dare go. In fact, a, a, a young lady saw me after the service this morning at between Sunday school and church. And she said she's an early service. Boy, I loved that sermon. Glad it didn't count. Didn't I'm glad it didn't relate to me. <laughs> now, what I'm talking about this morning is not the confession of the red lizard. What I'm talking about is a, is what I believe we need, and that is. A commitment to God that is total in its relationship. And nothing, nothing comes above it. Perhaps you need to come this morning and give your life to Christ. Or maybe you need to come to join a church or to recommit yourself to Him. My question is, are you totally satisfied with your relationship with God? Well, we, when we sing a moment, we'll invite you to come. I, I'm going to lead us in prayer, and we'll stand to sing. Join me. Our Father, touch our hearts now with this truth to bring change in our heart and our life, for I pray in Jesus' name and for His sake. Now in the spirit of prayer, would you stand as our choir begins to sing, I invite you to come.